you can subscribe to Of Age on Apple and Spotify podcasts and now receive bonus content in our monthly newsletter by making a pledge on patreon.com slash ofagepod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash ofagepod. Thank you for your support. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining me this week on Of Age. I'm Laura Holman, and over the past eight weeks, I have shared the coming-of-age stories of so many brilliant women. And now that we've reached the season finale, today will be a little different, because I'm going to take the mic alone. There are formative events in our 20s that we know in an instant are a good thing, that will change our lives for the better or set us on a course of good things to come. And I look forward to speaking about many of those events in the future, But I wouldn't be able to tell my own coming-of-age story if I left out a different kind of event. The kind that derails the plan. The kind that hurts us. Shakes us. The kind that, yes, perhaps teaches us something eventually, like how resilient we are. But it's a resilience we didn't ask for. That we never should have needed in the first place. Today I will be talking about the impact that a sexual assault from eight years ago has taken on me as I've gone through my twenties and approached thirty. By way of a trigger warning, I will be referencing that assault, but I will not go into any detail of the event itself. This episode will instead focus on one particular way it impacted me in the years that followed, and that was the loss of connection to my physical body. I'd also like to preface this reflection by saying that, while today we will focus on physical healing, I was able to mentally process this event with the help of my family, a few close friends, access to EMDR and talk therapy, and a long-standing love of journaling and self-reflection. Not everyone has access to those resources, and if anyone is in search of where to seek help, please do not hesitate to get in touch. Sexual assault is something that unfortunately has affected many of us in one form or another, and I would like to share this reflection acknowledging that no two experiences are the same. This podcast aims to offer community within our differences, and it's also a place of personal perspectives, compassion, and hope. So, maybe this episode will keep you company if you feel isolated in your life experience. Maybe it will give you a new idea when you feel like you've tried everything in your own healing journey. Maybe it will deepen your understanding of what a loved one might quietly be going through. For whatever reason you are here today, joining me on the Of Age podcast, I thank you. Following the night of March 7, 2013, the effects of being assaulted came in waves for me. In the immediate months that followed, I had many sleepless and anxious nights. I became very tense in social situations, simultaneously feeling hypersensitive to certain jokes or topics of conversation, and also feeling resentful when people walked on eggshells around me. I developed an extreme aversion to certain sounds, Some were predictable, like hearing a woman in distress. I remember the film Gravity came out that year, and the trailer particularly sticks in my mind. I could be watching something as tame as Jeopardy on a Tuesday night, but the moment it cut to a commercial break, hearing Sandra Bullock's cries for help in outer space would send me deep into a panic attack within seconds. My reaction was immediate, acute, 
and completely involuntary. My head would begin to shake uncontrollably, and a prickly heat would creep around my throat, up my neck, and flood into my ears with a painful white noise. I'd also have a visceral reaction to seemingly unrelated sounds, like chewing. I could not physically sit next to or near someone during a meal unless there was music playing to drown them out. For someone who loves cooking and sharing food with loved ones as much as I do, this felt like a cruel punishment for something I had no control over. Time healed these more concrete triggers for the most part, as did the aforementioned EMDR, a specific type of therapy that helps reprocess past traumas. These effects were easy for me to understand. They were all external, from the outside trying to get in. But there were other impacts at play, more subtle or intangible, that were growing stronger. Some of these more gradual effects were harder to understand at the time, and are frankly harder to talk about now, because there was some agency involved in them. They seemed to come from within. I began to drink alcohol with increased frequency, unconcerned about how it could affect both my short-term judgment and long-term health. I'd sit alone in my apartment several evenings a week and polish off a bottle of wine while watching a TV show I'd seen ten times before. It wasn't that I was making a conscious decision to say, I want to forget, or I want to feel numb. It wasn't really conscious at all for me. With men, I put on a suit of armor and went on the defensive. I decided that I did not want emotional connection of any kind, so it didn't really matter to me if physical connection was disproportionate. Sometimes I'd flirt without feeling, and sometimes more than that. I took pride in never wishing a man would text me after the fact, misidentifying this unfeelingness as my independent spirit. I knew those men didn't care about me, but I didn't care about them either. What I didn't realize at the time was that I didn't really care about me either. Being assaulted was an out-of-body experience, but I didn't realize until years later that I hadn't returned to my body. I had become desensitized, completely disconnected from my physical self. I was doing the mental work, but I didn't really get anywhere until I stopped ignoring the physical impacts. The relationship between valuing body, mind, and spirit is undeniable, but I was in a denial so deep I didn't even realize I was there. This went on for several years and, in the summer of 2019, I had hit a pretty low point. I had been bartending for almost a year at that point, and not writing at all. This was a big deal for me because I had specifically quit my teaching job, my quote-unquote stable job with benefits and a 401k, to write. But instead, I was bartending until 2am most nights, often drinking with coworkers after our shift, and then sleeping through my self-designated writing time. I had lost a sense of purpose, both in my career goals and otherwise. I was just flailing around, and I felt awful. I've always struggled with self-discipline. I'm often unable to see things through until their end. I have big ideas and huge goals, and I get paralyzed and too overwhelmed by how to even start in achieving them. I make sweeping statements to myself about writing 2,000 words a day, about curbing my drinking or Netflix-watching habits, about spending less money on takeout, about calling my grandparents more, about mailing birthday cards to friends. I also set these goals around exercise. I'll do yoga every single day, I'll do a cardio workout three times a week. 
I come in hot, and I cool off quick. But at that point, in June 2019, I felt completely directionless and pretty fed up with myself. I had hit what I thought were several rock bottoms during that period of going through life unfeelingly. I wanted so desperately to have one direction and to have it be forward. There wasn't a particular reason for the timing, not one huge wake-up call that made me say, enough is enough. But one afternoon that June, I made the decision to sign up for the Philadelphia Marathon. I decided that all I could do was to start putting one foot in front of the other. I've always been a sucker for a good metaphor. I want to be clear. I'm not a natural athlete. My face turns a deep red shade within five minutes of any physical activity, and I break into a sweat simply by vacuuming the living room rug. I hate gyms. I do not get a runner's high. It was a very sudden and random decision to sign up for the full marathon, and almost everyone who knows me expressed surprise when they heard this news, surprise that I'm almost sure was lovingly masked skepticism. I had run several half-marathons before. I ran my first half to spite an ex-boyfriend. When we were together, he and I had always talked about getting off the couch and going for a jog, and then we never did. A few months after we broke up, I saw on social media that he had ran a half-marathon for charity, so I signed up for my own half. The other races I ran out of obligation. My dad asked me to train with him, so I did. A friend asked me to sign up with her, so I did. I always trained half-heartedly, and I was always miserable after those halves. Sweaty, grumpy, exhausted, and vehemently insistent that I would never run again. The idea of doubling that distance seemed absolutely unthinkable. But there was something about that particular June 2019 afternoon that created a shift, an urgency to demonstrate to myself with some grand gesture that I was ready to turn things around. I barely told anyone in the beginning of training for the Philly Marathon because I was so sure I would lose steam and quit. I was so sure that it would be the same as my other grand gestures to myself, the resolutions I'd make after feeling certain I'd reached my lowest low. Those early training runs, when three miles felt absolutely grueling, made the final result seem incredibly far away and impossible. And it was far away, five months. But I took it run by run, day by day, step by step. I kept putting one foot in front of the other. Each time I would take those final few steps of a run, knowing I had just completed my daily goal, I felt stronger. I felt more grateful for my body. I felt like my body was valuable. Five months turned into four, and then three, two, and one, until finally I had hit every single training goal in the weeks leading up to the race. I'll be completely honest. I didn't follow most of the advice that's out there. I was told to cross-train. I didn't. I was told not to drink alcohol and to only eat healthy foods for the weeks leading up to the race. Instead, two nights before the marathon, I went out with a new neighbor and had way too much wine, so I spent the entire day before the race hungover, working my way through a massive cheesesteak. My point is not to dissuade any running hopefuls from this solid, tried, and true advice. My point is that you can run a marathon and not completely change who you are. 
Of course, these are all helpful suggestions, but they are not mandatory. Marathon running includes people who aren't quite ready to break every single bad habit they have. It includes people who have vices. It includes imperfect people. But it's an exciting thing to be imperfect, to get to know yourself and your imperfections. I began approaching myself with curiosity and reacting with fascination. How fascinating, I'd think, that I feel better running mid-afternoon rather than first thing in the morning. How remarkable that I can feel a noticeable difference when I have a protein-heavy lunch. How beautiful that my brain can communicate to my legs to keep moving. I started spending more time outside and less time on Instagram. I felt muscles I didn't know I had. I ran distances I never thought I could. For many years after my assault, I saw the world as an enemy. I reduced the world to what one person had done to me. I used that as an excuse to be inactive, to assign outside blame to how off-course my life had become. But running helped me befriend the world around me. I stopped using it as a scapegoat for bad things and instead accepted the past as the past and opened myself up to the beautiful present around me. In the same way I got to know myself on a deeper level, I also connected more to my surroundings. I'd grow emotional at the feeling of the crisp October breeze on my face or the smell of the damp autumnal leaves blanketing the streets of Old City. I explored new neighborhoods, new side streets. I discovered new shop fronts and made a point of returning to them on off days. I curated as much as possible matching songs to pace, planning on exact songs for exact points in the run. I had the lucky mathematical convenience of running at an exactly 10-minute mile pace, which made those curated playlists very straightforward to make. If I had a training run on the schedule that needed to be 7.5 miles, I would make a 75-minute playlist. I'd look at my route and notice a hill at 3.4 miles in, so I'd put a song at 34 minutes in that would instantly transport me to my own personal movie, that scene in the pouring rain where the main character has her inspiring transformation. All of the articles I read about marathon training suggested finding a buddy, someone who will hold you accountable to show up, someone to keep you company. I think that's a good start, but it wasn't enough for me. I'd say to run a marathon, you need to fall in love with your buddy. Not necessarily romantically, though that became the case for me, but finding a person you are absolutely obsessed with, someone you quite literally want to run to, can really change everything. Maybe for one of you this will be your partner, a best friend, or a sibling. Maybe it'll be an acquaintance, an almost stranger. Maybe it'll be the woman with great style that you sometimes bump into at Trader Joe's, who you've low-key been dying to hang out with. Maybe it's the hilarious guy in your office who you've always wanted to befriend outside of work. The key is to find someone you will, without fail, be willing to show up for. Sure, it takes a bit of bravery to ask that person to run with you, but if you're about to train for a marathon, you're going to need some bravery. For me, that person was Ramsey. I met Rams on my first day behind the bar. I knew very little about bartending in theory and even less in practice. I was so self-conscious starting out, especially when I was introduced to the person who would be training me, this talented, magnetic, and effortlessly cool man. Ramsey was patient with me as a bartender, just as he became patient with me when we eventually started going on runs together. He was a state champion in track. 
He was lightning fast and always relaxed on runs. He would listen to what I needed on any given day, and when I didn't know what I needed, he would help me figure it out. Sometimes he would run two steps ahead of me if I needed a little burst of competition. Sometimes he would run two steps behind me if I needed a little push. But most often, he was right next to me, doing the Macarena at red lights, swooping down to pet dogs, high-fiving joggers in need of a little boost along the Schuylkill River. This was by far the best motivation for me, the part of the day I most looked forward to. Not the running part, but the spending time with Ram's part. I'd pick an intersection or a spot along the river to meet him, and then spend the next few miles by his side. It's not lost on me that beginning to fall in love coincided with training for a marathon. I would have never been able to accept real intimacy with someone else before reconnecting with that part of myself. Ramsey was showing up for me, and that was okay, because I was also showing up for me. He was with me during the weeknight maintenance runs that would have otherwise felt like a complete drag, and he was with me for every step of those 26.2 miles on race day. Ah, race day, subject to the unpredictability of Philadelphia in November. The actual day of the marathon was a true weather disaster. We were up at 5 a.m., catching the earliest subway to the art museum. It was pouring that kind of violent freezing rain, the sleet that hits the skin like tiny sharp daggers. Our legs were stiff and our hands were numb before we even began running. I had run many of the stretches of the race day route several times, and I knew them well. The problem was, the longest training run is 20 miles, so past that was unfamiliar territory. The stretch around mile 22 took us down the main street of Maniunk, a very gradual downhill. It was a fun part of the race because the bundled-up onlookers who had braved the weather were handing out Dixie cups filled with beer, much to Ramsey's delight. But the route looped back around, so during the downhill, we knew what was coming, the eventual U-turn and steady incline. Around this time, my AirPods died and disrupted the carefully curated playlist we had crafted in the weeks leading up to the race. I stopped running and went off to the side. I was tired and freezing, but I looked Ramsey right in the eyes and knew we were going to finish that marathon. Four miles seems like a pretty significant length, especially at the time I'm recording this and barely able to last ten minutes outside during the Miami September. But when you're right there in it, knowing you're so close, knowing you've worked for five months to get here, for yourself and for that person looking you right in the eyes, you just know you'll get to the finish line, one step at a time. So, to run a marathon, I think you need to fall in love with someone you'd run through the freezing rain for. Hell, someone you'd run around the world for. I had been so resolute to be on my own for so many years that it felt exhilarating, fun even, to lean on someone for help. I loved when Ramsey would make playlists for the runs he didn't join me for, and I loved them because they gave me something extra to look forward to. Ask the person you're in love with to create playlists for you, at least in the beginning. Make all of the loves of your life, crushes, friends, hype women, Create half-hour playlists to get you going. Every time you go for a run, you'll know that someone was thinking of you, cheering you on, taking the time to create a way to help you get up and out. That way, you'll hear a song from the Princess Diaries 2 soundtrack and keep your pace, thinking, my sister knew this song would get me through another half-mile. But ultimately, run it for you. Soak in all of that support, 
but know that ultimately it will be your legs carrying you across the finish line. Make sure on that playlist you've included a few of your own love songs, and imagine you are singing the lyrics to the parts of yourself that are showing up, that are working hard to heal. Be grateful for the soles of your shoes hitting the ground, your body knowing to put one foot in front of the other. Training for a marathon gave me strength. I felt incredibly stronger each day. It made me value my legs and my lungs, my physical presence on this earth. No, we didn't see that Manny Young Hill coming at mile 22. No, I wasn't expecting that my AirPods would die during the race. But that's life. Life derails your plan. Life is unexpectedly inconvenient and difficult sometimes. But you keep putting one foot in front of the other. I'm not saying completing a marathon fixed everything. It did not wave a magic wand and make me a successful writer, cure all my bad habits, erase the effects of being assaulted eight years before. In fact, my heart has been racing the whole time I've been recording this episode, and that's my body reminding me to feel it. It's still hard. It still hurts. But I'm still here. Resilience doesn't come from refusing to feel anything. It comes from feeling everything. I ran a marathon and I fell in love. And it felt challenging, confusing, terrifying. But it also felt beautiful and worthwhile. It made me feel proud of the body I exist in. It made me feel alive. In a few weeks, I'll begin officially training for my second marathon, this time in Miami. It will be a completely different experience. New routes, higher temperatures, fresh music. But I'll be completely different too. I am so excited to learn more about myself and my body. I can't wait to get stronger and stronger. I can't wait to feel my legs carry me longer and longer distances with each passing week. To feel my lungs filling with fresh air. I can't wait to feel exhausted. I can't wait to feel sore. I can't wait to feel it all. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Did it make you want to lace up your sneakers and go for a run? Could it possibly nudge you to sign up for your first full marathon? We'll be sharing a playlist to get you started and some other great bonus content in our first monthly newsletter, which you can sign up to receive on patreon.com slash ofagepod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash ofagepod. You can subscribe to Of Age on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and join the conversation on Instagram by following at ofagepod. Thank you for your support. Thank you.